I sort of realized that what we teach inside the classroom in at Baltimore and other places really is something that non-lawyers could benefit from, um, basic legal concepts, as well as how to think about and discuss things in a way that tolerates different points of view, the fact there aren't clear answers, and the fact that at the end of the day, you might not be satisfied with how things resolve in the law. And, and it's that kind of bridging the gap between very polarized thinking and thinking in a more thoughtful way that I've become very passionate about. Welcome to the Insightful Voices podcast, a show that aims to cover a variety of topics affecting the legal profession. We will be speaking about current events in the law and engaging with thought leaders around access to justice and looking forward at our future. We will also bring you the perspectives of our fellow practitioners from a wide variety of practice areas and demographics. We'll give you an inside lens into specialties in the law, wherever you are and whatever your area of practice. Here's your host, Mark Skirty. Welcome to the Maryland State Bar Association's inaugural podcast, Insightful Voices. I am Mark Skirty. I'm the guest host today for our first podcast and our special guest, I'm extremely excited to introduce, Kimberly Whaley. She is currently a law professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, my alma mater, which I'm excited about, and specializes in administrative law, civil procedure, and the federal courts. She maintains a practice at Miller Frile PLLC in the district. She's also an accomplished writer and has appeared on TV and radio as a legal analyst. I'm thrilled and excited to welcome you, Kim, to our program today. And uh, I've got a couple questions for you, if I may. Well, first, let me thank you, Mark, for inviting me. And I'm really honored, of course, to be the first guest in this really important uh, effort. And so delighted, so delighted to be here. Well, you know, your job as a professor at University of Baltimore, I'm going to start there. Um, you're also a very sought after media legal analyst. And as I mentioned, authored a number of uh, publications. How do you go from law professor to a public voice on our democracy and the Constitution? Well, I've been teaching since 2006 and over the years sort of developed my way of doing things, um, which is a different skill than lawyering, right? Teaching non-lawyers how to think like a lawyer. And a few years ago, I was reading in the New York Times something about the president's pardon power that used the word unlimited or something to that effect. And, you know, we all, we teach our law students that to look for gray areas, to find the questions, not necessarily black and white answers. And it struck me that that wasn't fully accurate. That is, there have to be limits even on the pardon power. That is, it can't violate another part of the constitution. So I wrote my first op-ed for, uh, in that case, it was the Baltimore Sun. And that's where the things kind of slowly picked up and then really snowballed around educating the public about legal concepts. And I sort of realized that what we teach inside the classroom in at Baltimore and other places really is something that non-lawyers could benefit from, um, basic legal concepts, as well as how to think about and discuss things in a way that tolerates different points of view, the fact there aren't clear answers, and the fact that at the end of the day, you might not be satisfied with how things resolve in the law. And and it's that kind of bridging the gap between very polarized 
thinking and thinking in a more thoughtful way that I'm become very passionate about in terms of educating non-lawyers. And it's really a privilege to have this um, position now as a, as a public figure and someone, when I say public figure in the law, someone who speaks and translates these concepts into language that hopefully non-lawyers can understand. Well, you talk about polarization and debate. Now, recently you spoke uh, with the MSBA for one of our profiles in our Maryland Bar Journal, where you said that Americans are having the wrong debate. And that really stuck out for me. How do you reframe this discussion so that we're debating the right issue? The right issue is around we the people adhering to this concept that it's our friends and our neighbors um, that really are our allies in our functioning democracy, not politicians, right? I mean, the framers understood that, you know, famously Madison, that it's it's in the Federalist Papers, that it is human nature to amass, entrench, and ultimately abuse power, that ambition is necessary to counteract ambition. And the way this is kind of, I think, unraveled in recent years is this, this idea that we're on team politics uh, team red versus team blue. And that supplants basic concepts of self-governance. We're seeing a degradation of this notion that the peoples have the power. And um, given that the Annenberg Center in Philadelphia has done a study for many years and pretty consistently found that only a third of Americans can name the three branches of government accurately, it's hard to expect Americans to understand what the stakes are. So when I said that in, in your profile, the, the idea is people are still assuming democracy will always be our birthright. We will wake up in the morning and the sun will shine and we will be a functioning democracy. Um, what we're seeing is not just efforts to make it harder to vote, anti-voting laws, but efforts across the country to cancel votes in the next election, to give literally the power of deciding our elected leaders to politicians. And that is just not in any form, common sense form of the term democracy by, by the people. How do we get to a point where we can have a debate among the American electorate? And, and is there, what needs to be done in order to get to that point? Well, education, I think, is critical. Um, one of the pieces of the puzzle here um, as to why we're in such a dire moment, of course, has to do with social media and the digital age, which in a lot of levels has outrun the law, outrun you know, the Supreme Court's ability and lower court's ability to construe um, provisions of the Constitution in a manner that's consistent with their purposes and also with the realities of of modern technology, take the Fourth Amendment, for example, um, which of course envisioned British soldiers banging down a door and rifling through, you know, someone's papers in the drawer. Um, they're one copy of a parchment paper that might have something in there that would be perceived as seditious. Now, a search is conducted by purchasing data from private servers and then running an algorithm on it to sort of ascertain patterns in our clicks and our swipes. Um, and from that, gaining extraordinary amounts of information about what, not only what we do every day, but how we think. The, the law just hasn't caught up with that, right? It's outrun the law. And studies have shown 
that bad information spreads six times faster than good information. So Mark, I don't know what to do about, about the polarization in the country without figuring out what to do about managing the misinformation online. And what I try to do and encourage on, you know, a person by person, student by student, small group by small group level is to help people empower themselves to think about these issues in a way that tolerates the fact that people have different points of view and that law like life, politics like life is rarely black and white. It's mostly gray. And I taught a class a couple years ago at American University, actually Washington College of Law called Democracy at Risk. It was during the first Trump impeachment. I was on CBS under contract there talking about it on TV and would come into the classroom and I asked the students to read two op-eds on each topic. And there were sort of authorized sources or sources that I gave them criteria for how to find an accurate source. And at the end of the semester, a number of them said this is the first time I've come in not feeling like I had to defend my position. I came in curious about my position because I, I had to sort of think about it a little bit differently when we walked in the door. So I think it does start with education, Mark. I start. It comes with teaching in a different way, but also teachers having some courage and tools to have these conversations in a way um, that is that is, and the word safety is overused, but um, but but learning how to facilitate these conversations in a way that's not alienating, getting people out of their team, and getting them curious about uh, hearing the other side out with respect, and refocusing on the fact that there is such a thing as a fact. Um, so so it's from the bottom up, but it's it's a very very harrowing challenge, um, and unfortunately, I, I'm not as sanguine as I was even a year ago that Americans are up to the task anymore. I'm still hopeful, which is why I do this work, uh, but I think it's an uphill climb at this point. I wanna to turn to the three books that you've written. I pulled out at, um, one book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, How to Read the Constitution and Why, and How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. Uh, how did you decide on these topics for these books? Great question. So, so the third one is out in February 2022. So uh, that's in the process of finalizing the book. But it started with the Constitution book, and I actually have to back up a little bit. I was under contract, and still am under contract, one point um, with Cambridge University Press, which is a scholarly press, to write a book that summarizes my scholarly research, which is about the outsourcing of government to private parties and how do you uh, how do you police constitutional norms and protect constitutional rights when, for example, you know a private contractor searches somebody at the airport rather than a TSA worker. And I started writing this book at the same time I was doing a little more and more public speaking and realized I was writing for a different audience. And so um, I pitched a different book. And within 24 hours, really, HarperCollins took it. I mean, that my editor there, Sarah Nelson, I think, just realized that there was, this is the pulse of America. And that was how to read the Constitution and why, which was different and is different from other books on the Constitution because it doesn't explain it. It, it, it doesn't tell you what to think. It, it tries to tell you how to think in common sense language. You know, how do you know if oh, can the president do that or not? Well, they, the president can do that unless the other two branches stop the president. A very functional approach, for example. 
So that was book number one. When I got to the end of that, it dawned on me. The common sense thing was, wow, listen, we have our three branches. But at the end of the day, all accountability boils down to the ballot box. And then you go looking in the Constitution for the right to vote, like we have a right to free speech. It's not in there. There's no right of all citizens to vote, which shocked me. Um, And so I decided to do one-stop shopping for not just what the Constitution and the Supreme Court has said about voting, um, not just what the 50 states say, but also a definitional go-to guide. What is gerrymandering? What does it mean to have foreign influence in an election? You know, things like that. So that's a one-stop shopping for all of that. And then book number three is getting at where we started really earlier in the podcast, which is how do you get people to start thinking a little bit differently and get out, out of black and white polarized thinking, which is so corrosive, and realize there's no commercial guide to, to the basics of this skill that many of us are privileged enough to have who have a JD and people still pay for in law school, um, you know, hundreds of American law schools. And, and I tell my first years, you know, they struggle mightily. Um, and it's really hard. Anyone who's been through first year of law school, it's boot camp. The first semester is brutal. It doesn't matter where you go. Why? Because you're learning a new skill. You don't have it walking in the door. It's just not innate to think, look for problems, not answers, um, and look methodically think through things and turn the coin over and tolerate the opposing points of view because you have to, you'll lose your case if you get blindsided, right? So the third book is designed as a, a regular guide to start approaching everyday problems in a way um, that's measured and lawyerly. Um, but I really think there, there are su- supremely high ideals to this profession. And we do have, we take an oath when we, when we, when we um, pass the bar and we, we get licensed to practice law and we are officers of the court and, and we are uh, mechanisms for the engines of justice to, to function and be translated into rulings and legislation and ways that actually, things that actually affect people's lives. The third book is the third step in, in trying to have a respectful, apolitical or depoliticized, I should say, dialogue around this. And I get accused of being too political from both sides of the aisle, which I think is probably uh, a measure of success that maybe maybe I'm striking a chord that, that others that others aren't for whatever reason. And I don't want to be sidelined because, um, because I have, I have to have people agree with me. I want to switch topics a little bit. Uh, you've, I, I read over 33,000 students that you have are currently participating in a LinkedIn course that you teach, uh, called think like a lawyer. Um, this is amazing. Uh, what do you think makes this so appealing to so many people? And uh, what, what do you think is the uh, number one takeaway from this class that you're teaching? Well, this is a this is a sort of a mini preview of the book, How to Think Like a Lawyer. I mean, they're totally separate entities. LinkedIn is not related to Harper, and I adapted it for LinkedIn. But LinkedIn Learning is a platform with, I think, 800 million users across the globe that does these short courses on you know, all kinds of basics, decision-making to how to set up a home office to, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, And there was no course on there around basic legal analysis. And so the idea there is, okay, you've got a big decision to make in your life. Do you get that elective surgery? Do you take the job across the country? Um, How do you negotiate 
uh, a custody situation um, that is okay for your kids, but not exactly what you want. You know, these really hard decisions. And in writing the book, I did some research on decision-making. I mean, there's obviously a massive, massive trove of expertise in on this, and I'm not, I don't have, uh, I don't have that expertise, but, but I did learn that, that we have different ways of making decisions in the moment, right? We have our instinctive decisions, our decisions from the gut, and they are oftentimes driven by chemical reactions in the brain that go back to our limbic systems, our fight and flight systems. And so I think the biggest takeaway from this book is, or in this, in this course is, okay, if you've got one of those big decisions to make, give it a breather, let your, let your chemical reactions that are there to save your life settle down. And here's a step-by-step -step process that can bring order to what can feel like an overwhelming decision. Here are some tools to help you break down these ma major decisions. You might arrive at where your instinct is, you might not, um, but it can, the goal is to give you some sense that whatever you decide, you can feel good that you applied a process that that kind of a decision deserves. And here is one, a step-by-step -step process that a lawyer might apply. So I think it's a tool. It's a tool to help people not just make you know more thorough decisions, but decisions in a way that take into account stakeholders, which lawyers have to do. Are you talking to a judge? Are you talking to a jury? Are you talking to a client? Are you talking to opposing counsel? Are you talking to students? Um, all of those stakeholders have different incentives, different hurdles. So this too, again, I hope will help people um, join hands and not and not go to our opposing corners in life. Uh, I mean, that's a big that's a big ask, but you know, our, our corners in, in in the ring in the boxing ring instead figure out ways that we can we can see eye to eye and find common ground. So I know that's a long answer to your question, but it's it's about identifying, okay, this is the kind of decision that deserves thorough decision making. I don't necessarily have that skill. I haven't been to law school. I don't want to hire a lawyer necessarily. Here's five steps and I can apply it to any decision and see how it goes. And much of that is what lawyers do. I remember in my private practice, uh, you know, you're calming your, your client down because their head is in a spin. They're in that fight or flight. They want to fight with all might and they're scared, they're nervous. And it's, it's, and I like what you said, having them take back a step and just let it process and understand that there is a way to get through this and make better decisions. So uh, that's, that's a fantastic approach. Uh, and many people, well, 33,000 of them have, are, are going to benefit from that. Now, your career has gone a number of directions, uh, some unexpected, uh, and you've continued to grow and share your knowledge uh, on many different formats, whether law school and media or with your own client base. Uh, as a result, what is your sort of your takeaway as the most important lesson that you've learned uh, from your career over the years? Oh, again, so hard. I would say number one is preparation. And I tell my students this, uh, that, and I'm, yeah, obviously you know this, uh, you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you're not prepared, you, you're not going to do well. Uh, and you also have a lot more confidence when you're prepared. So preparation is, is number one. Number two is, and this isn't come, does not come intuitively to many lawyers or from a standpoint of personality. Number two is to take some risks. 
I mean, translating, going from writing 70 page law review articles with 400 footnotes, which I still do, to having, you know, 20 minutes to weigh in on breaking news on CNN, you know, a decision that was just came down. Many lawyers would say, I don't want to do that because I, I don't have the time to read all of that and I don't want to make a mistake. But my view is in that moment, I can add some value and help people understand this and and frame it. Um, I don't I'm not talking to the Supreme Court or a federal judge or a state judge or I'm talking to regular people and I know enough to be able to give them some tools to make sense of this. Um, number one is preparation. Um, number two is to take risks. And number three is, and I mentioned this earlier, is to hang on to your integrity. Students come in thinking, watching TV, that the lawyer's job is to fight, 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 fight. And the answer is no, actually. You do have, um, you have ethical obligations. Uh, you could lose your license. You have, you have obligations to the court. Um, but, and you might make your client unhappy. You might, you might have to deliver bad news, but that's your job. And hanging on to your ethics is, I think, is an important lesson that surprises surprises some students that that there is that element because they think, okay, law is law, there are rules, and I'm going to fight to the end. And they don't understand uh, that that's not how it works. And lastly, of course, you understand this as well. It's always going to work out the way you want. And uh, this, I think, is one of the good lessons from the book and from the course is, you know, it's not about winning. Uh, judges don't always resolve it the way you want. Juries don't come out the way you want. There are economic obligations. There are other people involved. I mean, if you go through a divorce, you might think it's you deserve this much money or the kids should do this. It might not work out that way. And learning to, to live with that, um, that is that is, I think, a crucial piece of law school so that you can tolerate two sides of the argument. Uh, and it's it's a good lesson for life. Now, you know, realistic expectations. I mean, that's what it's boiling down to in many ways. The preparation, as you said, taking the risk and hanging on to their integrity, but also providing that realistic expectation. You know, we see 99% of the cases never go to trial. They settle because they're, they get to a resolution that they have control over. And, you know, sort of wrapping this up and, and uh, you've been so tremendously generous with your time and this has been so delightful. But tell us, uh, you know, just for our law students that are out there, what kind of advice would you give them as they start to forge their career paths? Well, as far as first years, understand that this is boot camp and it's really, really hard and you're allowed to be a beginner that no one comes in knowing this skill. That is the skill that we call legal analysis. So it's okay to struggle and to sort of wrestle the octopus to the ground. And just like I can't explain to my kids how to ride a bike verbally and have them get on the seat and ride it perfectly, they have to fall, they have to wobble. There is, there is, a, there is a huge learning curve. And I think tolerating that and giving yourself some space to make mistakes is is important advice for any 1L. The second is to be prepared to work really, 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 really hard. And not, not all of this, unfortunately, um, this current generation of law students has that understanding coming in. I, I see over the years, and my colleagues will agree, there seems to be an expectation that it's kind of the grown-ups in the room, that is the professor's job is to, to 
to make the student understand and and to do what it takes to clarify, to review, to give tools. And we do all that stuff. Um, but I'm not going to be there in the courtroom. I'm not going to be there when you're when your client walks in the door with a problem and there's no answer on Wikipedia. If there was an answer on Wikipedia, no one's gonna pay you. Uh, they'll just look it up. Um, and so understand that feeling uncomfortable, not knowing where to start, not knowing the answer, having to put in more hours than you expected, that's all part of being a lawyer and you want to, you want to be the one you know, at CrossFit working really, really hard at the gym and passing out on the bed because, wow, I just really pushed myself. You don't want to be the one reading, you know, a magazine on a reclining bike at the gym and, and not breaking a sweat. Um, if you do the former and work really hard, you could have a very, very rewarding career and make an impact in people's lives. And, and that's one of the privileges of a legal education. Kim, I want to thank you for your insightful and, and wonderful interview this afternoon with us on our initial podcast, Insightful Voices. And in fact, they were very insightful into the election, into democracy, and more importantly, how to think like a lawyer. Please join us on the first Tuesday of every month for the next edition of Insightful Voices brought to you by the Maryland State Bar Association. Thank you again, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Insightful Voices podcast has been brought to you by the Maryland State Bar Association, the home of the profession. Stay tuned for the next episode and subscribe now so you won't miss a moment.